You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Besides the resurrection of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle found in all four Gospels, which I think is very significant. If God tells us something once, it's important. But in the New Testament, he recorded that specific miracle four different times. So it must be important or that would simply not be true. Why did he do that? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning, and we're going to continue out of the Gospel of John, which is what we've been studying. So I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read this whole episode. It's about 15 verses. So around verse 3, or 6 or 7, if you need to take a break, just wave at me, and I'll, then I'll get back to it. But um, this is such a great story. There's so much in it. I'm not sure how much we'll get to it. Uh, how much of it we'll get to. But if you are wanting to read along, I usually use the New King James. Well, I am this morning. I use the New King James in the Passion Translation. This is the New King James Version. John chapter 6 begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. And I had a little aside here. Aren't you glad there's someone in your crisis that knows what to do? Let's think about that a second. Matter of fact, that'd be a good spot to thank the Lord right there. There's someone in your crisis that knows just what to do. So Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, Oh, there's a a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Actually, they think there could possibly have even been 5,000 families. The reason there were so many people and the reason they were gathered together was they were coming, basically coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so I think Jerusalem grew by a million people during some of these feasts. And so uh, as they were coming, apparently they'd heard about Jesus. And so 5,000, it says men, but other places says women and children. There were probably family units came, and Jesus decided he wanted to feed them. So he says, what do we have? And they said, there's a little boy here. Actually, the, the language it actually could have been a little boy or a little girl. But they had five barley loaves. Now, when you think barley loaves, think Bojangles biscuit. It wasn't really, a, you know. 
wasn't a, our loaf. It was just, I mean, what a little, say a little boy would carry for a bag lunch. Five barley loaves, five biscuits, two small dry fish is what it was. And um, Andrew says, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and to the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And so if you think about this, I have no idea how this actually worked. First of all, how many of you believe this actually happened? That's good. That's a good start. So they had five biscuits, and if you divide five biscuits among 12 apostles, um, if it were six biscuits, everybody would get a half, so figure it out. And two fish, so you would have to divide each of those small fish into six pieces. So maybe an apostle got less than half a biscuit and a sixth of a dried fish. And Jesus said, go. Now, who had more faith, Jesus or the apostles? I don't know. It took a lot for those guys before the miracle to tell everybody to sit down because supper was coming, you figure. Um, So Jesus takes it distributes it to the disciples, the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish. And they had as much as they wanted, which is a miracle. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus fed 5,000 men with their wives and children with a little boy's lunch. It was the most, most remarkable episode. And then after everybody had eaten as much as they wanted, the Bible says they were satisfied, They gathered up everything that remained, and they had 12 full baskets. Um, So they had more left over after everybody in that crowd had eaten than they even started with. And, um, Lord, what are you you talking? What are you saying? This is remarkable. You know, I have heard from um, ministries overseas, particularly I think Heidi Becker's ministry, they have fed hundreds and hundreds of people at times with just not many chickens. And so these uh, miracles of multiplication, um, maybe they're rare, but they have continued to to happen in different places at different times. Um, When you look at all four of these gospels, one theme you find uh, that runs throughout them is that when Jesus saw the multitude, It says he had compassion when he looked at the crowds that followed him um, like because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd aren't long for this world because they're not very smart and they're not very skilled 
at staying alive if somebody's not looking after them pretty closely. Now, um, we need to think that through. Jesus is telling us we are not very skilled at life. Can you, can you hear that? Um, and so what Jesus did, and the Bible goes on to say this, one place it says, so he began to teach them many things. Um, another of uh, one of the parallel verses or parallel passages, the one in Luke chapter 9 says, um, he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So when Jesus looked at the multitude, when he looked at a sort of a normal average group of people, his heart broke for them. And so here's what he decided he needed to do in order to begin to remedy their situation. He needed to heal them and he needed to teach them about the kingdom of God because their understanding about life was not going to get them through. This is what Jesus thought the world needed. He thought the world needed to be healed, and I believe that's body, soul, and spirit. And he thought the world needed to be instructed because people are not born. It is not an innate thing within any human being to know how to live successfully. Now, I am sure that can make people unhappy who are very proud of how they have navigated life. But I'm just telling you from Jesus' viewpoint, here's what people need. They need to be instructed in the kingdom of God. They need to be touched by God in ways that will change them, heal them. Um, so I want to look at some of these verses. In verse 5, it said, Then Jesus lift up, lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Um, Jesus did not ask Philip, How are we going to do this? Because he already knew how he was going to do it. But what he was asking Philip is, Philip, where will this come from? And what Jesus was saying to Philip, he was saying, Philip, do you realize I, me, myself, I am the source for everything you need and everything they need? Actually, Michelle talked about that earlier today. That's become a trite, a trite um, comment. Jesus is the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a Christian, that's all you have for people is Jesus. It's not a trite answer. It's the most profound thing we could ever tell another person because we're not talking about a theoretical character. We're talking about a person who is alive and was resurrected from the dead and has answers to absolutely every single solution, has solutions to absolutely every problem we may have. Now, they don't come suddenly. They don't come quickly. You may have to do some character development to get to the answer for your problem. But if you will stick with him, he will bring you through. He will. Um, if you can stand the trip, 
that was humor there somewhere. Anyway, so where will we buy bread? Well, Jesus was testing Philip to see if Philip would look to Jesus for the solution instead of trying to figure out how to do this, uh, how are we going to do this on our own? And verse 6 says this, but this Jesus said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, let me say that again. Let, 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 me, let me emphasize this one terrifying four-letter word, test. There was one phrase my teachers used to say that would strike terror to my soul. And it was this, take out a clean sheet of paper and number from 1 to 25. How many of you remember that in school? How many of you shuddered when you heard that? Yes, everybody. I know I did. But here's something we have to recognize. God will test us. God's going to put us to the test. That's why it's important to, it was an open book test. But tested you shall be nevertheless. And um, I think there are a number of reasons. One reason God tests us is because it's a developmental process to begin to give us the kind of confidence we need to where we can really trust the Lord because there's, there's difficult situations every one of us face in life. So being tested is not a bad thing because God believes he is, he is significant. He is... Um, he is sufficient in you to meet any test he may give you. And God puts a very high priority on trusting him. Actually, that's the only real qualification apart from repentance from sin, obviously, but the only real functional qualification for entering into the full life of God is trust, putting your faith in Jesus. And there's so many people you know, you want to question, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you gone beyond the point of no return? The most miserable Christians I know are the Christians that have not gone beyond the point of no return. They have other solutions. They're still plagued. Well, there's a point where you have to, you have to go the distance, but God will test us and the nature of life in this world the nature of life itself just brings with it challenges. Now, if you've been around long enough, you can know that sometimes those challenges will absolutely overwhelm us. Some of them have the potential to destroy us or at the very least to damage us if we don't build our relationships, if we don't build our lives on a real relationship with Jesus and what he has said in the Bible. Bible. The Bible. What do I believe about the Bible? I believe the Bible is what God says. I believe it's accurate. I believe you can depend on it. I believe if you don't have um, a very profound knowledge of it, you are going to be tested anyway as though you do. Because trouble is um, an equal opportunity employer. Trouble never asks you if you're prepared. He just shows up. Now, 
saying all that, I'm taking some of these ideas out of Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. Jesus said this, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, let's say that expression, hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same thing happened to that man that happened to the man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, and it fell. And Jesus ends this section of Matthew chapter 7 this way. And great was its fall. That's how important it is. That's how um, we must, we must, you know, I believe in the joy of the Lord. I really do. I believe in being happy no matter what. But, you know, I also believe there's a time to, to be sober-minded. I believe, you know, um, I believe it was the Apostle Paul actually wrote to one of, uh, in one of his epistles. He said, I think this was Paul, he said, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. There really are times, I don't believe we're supposed to live this way because I don't generally believe introspection is that helpful because when you're looking at yourself, neither one of you know what you're doing. But uh, I don't think you get an accurate analysis by introspection, but I do believe this. There really is a time you need to take an assessment in your life as to whether or not you really are living by faith. I'm, I'm posing that challenge today. Are you living by faith? Are, thing, are there things you're doing that if God doesn't help you, they're not going to work? That's one aspect. I don't know. But Donna and I had an experience. Um, this one goes back like, uh, like 33 years ago. We had a test, and I've talked about this before, but I want to talk about it again because I think it's so important. For 20 years, I worked as a traveling salesman. I sold restaurant equipment, and then for a number of years, I was a manufacturer's rep. Um, 12 years I spent in this area, seven years I spent in the two Carolinas. I spent a lot of time in my car, and I would um, almost always be listening to Bible teachers on the radio as I drove. One morning, I was listening to J. Vernon McGee. How many of you have ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? He, he was an interesting sort of cranky old country-talking guy, but uh, I, I would listen to him because I thought he had something to say. Uh, so I was stopped at a traffic light behind a dirty transfer truck, and I noticed on the back of that truck, someone had written the word test in the dust on the pull-down door. And as I was looking at that word, I had a weird inner sense that the Lord was speaking to me. I knew a test was imminent and the Lord was alerting me so that I could pass it. Then at that very moment, I thought that J. Vernon McGee quoted Isaiah 46, one through four. 
with some commentary. So this is what he said. Bell bows down. This ain't going to make any sense, but he's talking about idols. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and and will deliver you. And so J. Vernon said, many people try to carry and support God. The heathen carry their idols and are greatly burdened by them, just as the prophet Isaiah reports. But the true God wants to carry us, even to our old age, to our gray hairs. Yes, I'm still quoting J. Vernon. Yes, he wants to carry us. Will we let him? This is the test. And I'm looking at the word test, and I'm going, ah! That's called a prophetic experience for those of you who need a definition for it. Okay. At that time, Donna was pregnant with our fourth child. She was in the third month of pregnancy, and in the middle of the night, her water broke. And realizing this could be the beginning of a miscarriage, um, well, she didn't tell me in the middle of the night. She waited till the next morning. And, and so when she told us, told me, we began to, you know, ask the Lord, Lord, here we are. What is the story? So Donna went to the doctor the next morning, and although the test indicated she had lost amniotic fluid, that's the fluid in the, the sac that protects the child, although she had lost amniotic fluid in the night because there was evidence of it in her, in her clothing. Isn't that right, Donna? I believe that's true. Anyway, I mean... My water didn't break. <laughs> oh. Um, in the night, well, measurement showed that her uterus was the correct size for this stage of her pregnancy. The perplexed physician had no medical explanation, and miraculously, the child's protective sac was still intact. But in most situations, you lose the child. When that happens. And so we really, really were concerned. So from time to time during the pregnancy, Donna and I would deal with nagging thoughts concerning the welfare of our unborn child. Well, the interesting thing was the enemy tried to use a very positive experience I'd had with the Lord uh, back in 1973 to help fuel my anxiety. And here's what happened. When I was, uh, I was with a, a short-term missions group back in 1973, and we um, spent about four weeks going from um, Ireland to England to all over Europe and the Middle East to, to all the way to Israel. Um, and so when we landed uh, in Ireland, first thing we did was we went to this, this, this youth hostel 
and the little kind of a hotel. And as I was putting my bags on the floor, I can remember it like it happened yesterday, two Bible reference verses popped into my mind, which is not something that ever happened before. One of them was Chronicles 2.27, and the other was Genesis 29.34. So I thought, man, that's odd. So I wrote them down. And um, then I read them, and here's what they said. The sons of Ram, the firstborn of Jeramiel, were Maaz, Jamin, and Eker. I thought, well, that's odd. And then I read the, the next one, and it said, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now, what, what was going on here was the first one talked about, both of them talked about having three sons. And the first one talked about the sons of Ram, where my initials are R-A-M. And um, I concluded God was telling me in this strange, unusual way, and it was very unusual, particularly for me back in 1973, it's not so unusual now. Sometimes some of the ways the Lord may speak to me, but I, I thought, wow, this is, this is strange. But I began to tell people, and uh, I believe I'm going to have, I'm going to get married. And I'm going to have three sons. And um, they, most of them all laughed at me um, until July of 1983 when after I, Don and I got married, our third son was born. It took seven years for this word to be fulfilled. So I had that very specific encounter with the Lord where I knew I was going to have three boys, but he never told me anything about a daughter. And so the whole thing, time this episode was going on about whether we would lose this child or not, it's like the devil would say, you're going to lose that child because the Lord told you about three sons and never told you about that daughter. It's because... She's not going to make it. So um, we battled through, and at a given point, actually I have the date, on July the 17th in 1985, the Lord spoke to me, and I wrote this down. He encouraged me about some particular business problems, and then he ended with these words. And as you rest and trust in me, so shall your child be born without a hitch, and she was. And that was our daughter. Uh, we called her Katie. Her name's Mary Catherine. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that we're going to be tested. Um, I had a, a, a young man say to me, why should I come to church? And I said, well, if you... I said... Statistics prove that even if you come to church and don't pay attention, your marriage has a much higher probability of lasting, even if you don't even listen. That's probably not true, but I mean, statistically speaking. <laughs> and um, you're going to be tested. Things are going to happen in your life that you don't want to happen. Robin, you're cursing me. No, I'm not cursing you. I'm just letting you know how this works. My job is to, to prepare you. Really. So that's a great reason to come, to build strong relationships. Um, that's a great reason to come, to get gain insight as to how life actually works. 
That's a wonderful thing if you begin to realize that there's a kingdom realm you can lay hold of, take possession of, receive physical, spiritual, um, mental, even financial benefit from if you know how that kingdom actually operates and if that kingdom is actually real. There's a lot of reasons to be somewhere on a Sunday morning other than uh, uh, Starbucks or Panther Stadium. I <laughs> just threw that in. Anyway, the other thing is this. I mentioned this before. Trust is a high priority with God. One of the things we need to realize, how many of you finding it easy to trust the Lord? I don't. I find it very difficult to trust the Lord. And I have learned over time it's because it's a learned relational experience. There are situations I can go through now that don't bother me near as much as they would 20 years ago because I've learned over time I can trust the Lord. It's a learned experience. And one of the things we've got to recognize is our enemy, our adversary, wants to do whatever he can to lie about God, to convince us that he's not trustworthy because he knows that's the key to destroying our lives. You know, the Bible talks about the devil, and it says the devil, what are the three things he does? He's a liar, and he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy And one of those words, I think it's the word kill, doesn't just mean put you to death. It means to slaughter you. It means to do you serious damage and harm. And he knows if he can keep you from trusting God, he has greater opportunity to destroy your life. He told Adam and Eve in essence in the garden, God is holding out on you. You should go and eat from that tree. You should disobey. He's holding out on you. And look what's happened to us. We're still battling through with the the thing that Adam and Eve did. We find in our own nature the inclination not to trust. But we need to learn how to trust God. It's so important. Um, Looking at verse 7. When Philip answered Jesus, he told him basically eight months, an eight-month Salary is not enough money to buy all the bread for everyone here to even have a little. So Philip's viewpoint of what the best that would happen with the 5,000 men and their children was some of them may have a little. But after Jesus did what he wanted to do, everybody had as much as they wanted. Let's say those they had as much as they wanted. That's called satisfaction. I like to think God wants us to be satisfied. I was thinking too about what Andy said earlier. Beauty for ashes. And if the Lord, the Lord would say to Andy, well, if the day comes when my beauty in your sight is turned to ashes, will you leave me? I think that was a very, very profound thing for the Lord to say because, do you know, part of the temptation, 
part of the test every believer will ever have is the day that comes when we see no beauty in him. We do. When things didn't work out the way we wanted them to work out. What do you do when you've determined God's disappointed you? How do you deal with that? Well, I think one way you deal with it is you get up the next morning because at a given point and place in time, he will prove himself to you. But there's something that there's, there's something when G, here's the amazing thing. When Jesus took the, 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 the bread, that little boy brought him. He did three things. He thanked God for it. He blessed it. And then he broke it. Say that one word with me, please. Broke it. Just he broke it. Just say that. He broke it. You see, one of the things a lot of Christians do not understand to be useful, you need to be blessed, but you need to be broken. I think I'm looking over there at Sarah, and I think about John Mark. I think about some of the songs they sing that have gone around the world. Do you know where those songs came from? Brokenness. I think about some of the music Andy Squires writes. You know where some of those best, most profound, most uh, songs that provide the most ministry have come from? They have come from situations and episodes where you were brokenhearted, where you don't understand where God's a liar, where why did he let me down, where why did he treat me this way? But the truth of the matter is there's something profound that happens when you navigate those kinds of situations and still love him because he will prove to you. He will give you a million dollars from a brokenhearted song. He will give you a life-changing book from episodes of disaster and failure and frustration and disappointment if you stay the course, if you stay the course. Because he says, I will never disappoint you. And so if we're disappointed, we're in an argument with God. We've got to understand we cannot determine how we feel ultimately until we continue all the way through the process to the end of it. And at the end of it, here's what we see. We say that God was faithful. God was reliable. God was always there. God had a solution when we didn't have one. And when we saw it, we knew it was him. And we were so grateful to have had that experience with him because now we have something to give somebody else when they're in trouble. And you see, that's one of the things Paul tried to teach believers. Your life is not your own. Your pain, your heartache, your suffering is for benefit of someone else if you can see the redemptive character of God in what you go through. 
You are not your own, the Bible says. You've been bought with a price. You've been paid for. You've been ransomed. Your life needs to be lived in a way that other people benefit from it. And they will never benefit from it until you have gone through sufficient things to develop a character and a kindness and a faith and a perseverance that bleeds over into the lives of other people who have not come as far as you have yet, but they want to. Well, verse 9 says, um, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? I read a number of different commentaries on this, uh, and, and I got some great comments. The only one who came prepared gave away his lunch. Think about that. You're the only one in 5,000 got a lunch. And you're going, tough. Boy Scout, bro, be prepared. I used to think um, that was childlike faith. But that wasn't, that child didn't have childlike faith. He had the faith of a child. That's what he was. We need to have childlike faith. That's a great idea. It's not about Mark. I read this, Mark Ballinger said, it's not about how little or how much you have. It's about how much of it you're going to give to Jesus. Kent Hansen wrote this. We're in trouble when we attribute more power to the problem confronting us than to our God. The test is God's process for us to help us focus more on him than the problem. Ooh. Verse 11. And I'm not going to make it all the way through, but I do want to make it through this one. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So in one, in the Gospel of John, it says he gave thanks. In some of the other Gospels, it says he blessed and broke and gave and there's such, such an important truth deposited here. When he had given thanks, Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. The geographical location where this miracle of multiplication occurred in Luke 9.10 is called, the place was called near Bethsaida. But later in John's gospel, after the miracle, the disciples described that location in a uniquely different way. When they were talking about that very same location, they said, oh, it was near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's a, that's a weird way to describe a location when you already had a good description. Oh, where was that field? It was right near Bethsaida. But something so significant happened that day that when 
Later in chapter 6 of John, they would describe that place. They would say, well, that was near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, what you see here is in the disciples' minds or in the apostles' minds who were the people close, the most closely related to Jesus, they connected the multiplication to the thanksgiving. So much so that they would actually describe a geographical location that way, which is very, very strange. But those the closest to Jesus seem to attribute the multiplication of resources to Jesus' commitment to being thankful. And everything give thanks, the scripture says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There are only two verses in the entire New Testament that clearly articulates the will of God, and that's one of them. The other one is uh, uh, being sanctified. This is being holy, uh, not practicing immorality of any shape or form is what, what, what he's saying there. That's the will of God. But being th- how many of us saying, God, in our complaint, what's your will? Well, here, here's my will for you. Be thankful. Thanksgiving attracts God and his goodness. How many of you are repelled by negative complaining people? How many of you have been a negative complaining person? <laughs> you should quit. Of course. That's how you start. Self-centeredness and selfishness and lack of thanksgiving is a landing pad for oppression. But being thankful, being grateful, offering praise to God attracts all the things God is and does and wants us to have. It attracts him. It's attractive. I mean, we're attracted to that. Grateful person, someone that's happy. Being thankful is God's gift to us to help us reset our minds to live in a healthy way. I believe Thanksgiving is a key to increase. And even when it isn't, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say Thanksgiving is not a key to increase. But even if it isn't, being thankful makes you the kind of person other people want to be around. It increases your social value. People like you. Kids adore you. Popsicle companies want you to do their commercials. I just threw that last one in there. But Thanksgiving gives us a focus. The, 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 the apostles, the disciples focused on what they didn't have. Jesus focused on what he did have. There's just so many valuable lessons in this. So I'll read one last thing. Maybe. You may remember at the end of that story, it says because Jesus fed everybody, they were going to try to make him king. You remember that part? Well, one of the footnotes in the Passion Translation said this, Jesus knew the time of liberating Israel had not yet come. Men don't just need better government. 
We need new hearts. We need better hearts. The best government in the world, no matter who leads it or who is involved in it, if we don't have good hearts, if we're not grateful, we become become poverty-minded. We become poor in the wrong kinds of ways. Um, so, four different gospels we find this story. What do we find in it? Number one, that God will provide for us. Number two, to reveal us that Jesus really loves us like a shepherd over sheep who are lost. He has compassion. We find that God really wants us to trust him. He's going to bring us into places where we'll be able to express that. That thanksgiving is an essential part of our lives. And we are going to be tested in this life and Jesus wants us to prevail. I heard a guy say, I think it was Francis Frangipane years ago. He says, you never ultimately flunk a test. You just keep taking it till you pass it. That's the spiritual idea. You just keep taking it till you pass it. How many of you want to pass all your tests? Let's ask the Lord to help us. Come on, let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, there's so much in that story. There's so much in feeding the 5,000, Lord. We're thankful you gave it to us. Lord, open our eyes. Show us where it is we're not grateful. Give us the tools. Give us faith. Release that level of trust that you want in our lives. And we do thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We thank you for our friends. We thank you for our families. We thank you for all our provision, Lord, for the gifts you've given us, for ideas, for fresh new ways to look at life. God, just uh, continue to pour out on us your goodness. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.